Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey Stretchy Knockreiner. I couldn't think of anything, but my back felt like it needed a stretch, so there you go. Stretchy, are you like Gumby or something? Yeah, Gumby Knockreiner. <laughs> Who's the um, Incredibles wife? What's her name? I wish I could oh do man. that. Yeah. Anyways. On today's episode, we are not discussing stretchy superheroes. Instead, we are covering uh -huh. another publication from CISA and the NSA with some pretty good guidance. I thought you said we weren't discussing superheroes. Hey, CISA? there you go. <laughs> Shout out to <clears throat> NSA and CISA. <laughs> Additionally, we'll be covering other superheroes and <laughs> new rules coming from the SEC uh, and then ending with more superheroes in a law enforcement takedown of a popular cybercrime forum. Man, this is all government all the time with us now, Mark. What's going on? Sponsored by the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> with that, let's go ahead and fly our way in. Ooh, like a superhero. Get I've it? always wanted my pilot. Oh, now I do. But I thought we would sneak our way in with our invisibility. Maybe flying is not my super, actually flying is my superpower. I've always wanted to be a pilot. It'd be more fun without the plane. As long as you could fly, otherwise, maybe not. <laughs> you and I have very different definitions of fun. So let's uh, start this week with, man, actually, I well, kind of bad every single week i feel like we start with something out of cisa it's which honestly this is a good thing cisa has been putting out a lot of really quality content and reports and everything lately so yet again for another week in a row potentially uh, we're going to start with another publication from our friends at cisa and the nsa uh, where just last week they released the recommended best practices for infosec professionals who manage digital identities Basically, it's this big old 31-page document that's a part of the NSA's Enduring Security Framework Initiative that they started relatively recently. Um, they, in the document, point to the 2022 Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report, which had this big old splashy stat of 80% of attacks leverage stolen credentials. And basically, this document is a collection of best practices and like tactics and techniques that adversaries are using all around identity and access management for all organizations, not just critical infrastructure, but everyone can use this one. Um, they point to a few specific examples in recent years. 2021, there was a colonial pipeline attack that involved a stolen VPN credential. 2021 as well, the Oldsmar, Florida water supply attack where a stolen remote access credential to, I think it was like, go to my PC or something equivalent. And then a 2022 water treatment plant attack in the UK that also leveraged stolen credentials. And basically through the report, it's designed to give guidance and mitigations against the most common techniques by threat actors. They have a whole list of things. Some of them, though, are like creating new accounts to maintain persistence, assuming control of accounts of former employees that you didn't properly uh, deactivate, various types of exploits against authentication, and abusing stored local credentials on machines that they're able to gain access to. And they do this by bucketing into five specific categories of mitigation techniques, uh, which we'll go over at like a high level uh, throughout this section of the episode. The first main technique is all about identity governance. 
So basically, yeah. the, who gets a login when, how, and more importantly, what happens if they move or leave? Exactly. So they describe it as the process by which an organization centralizes and orchestrates uh, its users and service account management. And they pointed out three main critical lifestyle events that organizations should focus on when it comes to identity governments. So there's properly provisioning new accounts um, based off of what the minimum requirements are for what they need. So when you get a new user or a new contract you're working with, not just you know cloning some other account, but figuring out exactly what they need to do to their job and provision the account based off of that. They've got uh, preventing privileged uh, privilege, blah, 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 privilege accumulation for users when they change roles. So if an employee gets promoted or moves to a different department, making sure you don't just tack on those new privileges to the old ones, but you're also cleaning out what they no longer need. Yeah, maybe I'm in support and my account has key card access to a test lab that's part of support, but then I move to product management and my key card still has access to that test lab. Why? Why? I don't need it anymore. Exactly. And then uh, leaving. So properly terminating user accounts when the user leaves and not just leaving them open. Because even if that user isn't logging in anymore, like they potentially still could. Or maybe that account get, was compromised at some point. Now an adversary can get in. So just basically keeping your house in order is all of the guidance in this section. And it's stuff that like, I feel like most organizations probably do a lot of this well enough to varying degrees um but it's all you'd about hope you'd I, hope I, 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 we've seen historical accounts before at places that should have gotten rid of them but the purpose of at least this section of their their best practices is to specifically focus on onboarding maintenance and offboarding user accounts to make sure you don't have old legacy accounts or over join move ones. and leave yep exactly uh, the second major category is environmental hardening. So making sure that the foundations and implementations of your identity and access management are sufficiently secured, assured, and trusted. They basically say this makes it harder for a bad actor to exploit the IAM components and software. And they broke it down into like three steps that you should go through and then a list of like best practices when it comes to this section in environment hardening. Um, so if we go to the three steps, the first is do a, um, a start with an inventory and asset management within your organization. Basically, you can't do access management if you don't know exactly what systems are in your company that people would potentially access. Um, you need to have an inventory or asset management system to track these assets in your environment. And then once you've done that, you can identify asset connectivity. So consider the exposure of assets to threats. Uh, and the architectural designs and security mechanisms you have intended to isolate them. Things like network segmentation, the principle of least privilege, basically like zero trust, or in this case, even just zero trust light, basic principle. You, you hope privilege. there's zero trust, but you need to identify all the access points in order to create those zero trust policies. Yep. As part of this, the next step is identify value of assets. So basically they label it as figure out what your crown jewels are in your company. What are not just in terms of like, business and enterprise function, but even data as well too. Like what would be extremely detrimental to your company if it went offline or if it was compromised and the data was exfiltrated out of your organization? Because this is gonna dictate what levels of controls and additional monitoring you might do for these systems. So none of this is really like groundbreaking. This is all 
basics that organizations should follow, but maybe laying it out in checklist form can help get buy-in from, from leadership teams. I don't know. When it comes to the best practices, again, also nothing groundbreaking this section, basic environmental hardening they recommend, making sure you've got backups of these assets and systems, again, the principle of least privilege, basic network segmentation, and then regular assessments to make sure that your controls and monitoring are actually doing what they're supposed to do. Um, number three from the report is identity federation and single sign-on. And basically this boils down to uh, eliminating the need for users to remember individual accounts for a bunch of different systems. And this is both in terms of like the services that they use every day, but also importantly, like local authentication as well too. Um, they frame it as like eliminating wide implementations is what they call it, um, and dependencies on local identities, which helps reduce the burden of remembering credentials and also limits your overall complexity lets you have a single policy that's easily enforced across all authentication, easily facilitates multi-factor authentication, so on and so forth. So in the report, they highlight SAML and OpenID Connect or OIDC as two primary options for federate, federating authentication. Um, but then in the best practices, uh, they've got a few other bullet points they hit on too. So first off, proactively audit for local accounts. So this means, you know, not just assuming that people aren't using local accounts built into systems, but proactively go out and look for instances where they potentially are. And so you can act on them. Make sure you've got a, uh, a policy in place that disallows local accounts on any platform. So this does require potentially technical tools to support federated authentication to local systems as well. If you're in an entirely Windows shop, this is obviously very easy because you can just use domain authentication into machines. But if you're in a mixed shop with Linux systems and you know your network infrastructure, this can become a little more complicated to actually act on. Um, and then also make sure you've got SSO availability. So focus on keeping this federated authentication online because obviously if it breaks, you can't log into anything. Um, so again, not anything groundbreaking, but still um, I felt like a good section to highlight there. Number four is something that you, me, and everyone in security has been preaching from the rooftops forever, and that is multi-factor authentication. Uh, I don't think we have to explain what MFA is to anyone that is listening to here, but they did point to the fact that not all MFA solutions are created equal, and they recommend following NIST's uh, SP, their special publication, 800-63 for guidance on which ones to use. And they even gave a few examples too. Like uh, maybe for a admin logging into a database, you have a stronger form of multi-factor authentication requirement, like a FIDO key, whereas a unprivileged user accessing a uncritical, non-critical system, maybe you can allow lower forms of MFA there too. Um, so they seem to try and strike a balance between like strength and usability for users, recognizing that not all MFA is created equal. And so that was good to see. They did, for best practices, recommend you uh, regularly test and patch your MFA infrastructure to make sure it stays uh, resilient. Uh, deploy it alongside single sign-on because this, again, lowers friction to your users. And actually, that's a good point to stop at, Corey, I think. So one of the biggest feedbacks I get from our customer base with like AuthPoint and the IDP portal it has, that little portal you log in with the tiles for different apps, 
is that by when the way they... helps with SSO exactly know, the tip before <laughs> from the the end users an early complaint I always see with multi-factor authentication is it adds friction it makes it more difficult for me to do my job because now I have to go in and do this second thing when I log into something but then once they start using single sign-on with like the IDP portal and using those tiles the benefits of that significantly outweigh the five yeah. seconds of friction. Of One login versus 12. Without that SSO portal, you're logging on to 0365, drop, uh, your company portal, some weird website you use for some SaaS app. So even if you didn't have MFA, you're entering your credentials over and over and over again. When you pair MFA and SSO, it's just beautiful because you, you might have to do that MFA once, but then you never have to type credentials or anything else for at least that day or period of time. So yeah, I think it, it reduces friction quite a bit. Also, the, the NIST SP863 for guidance, I think that's one of the ones that has down downgraded text-based authentication. and. It's like text space is, is the pain in the butt everyone talks about because you have not only your, your username, your password, but you have that, you know, OTP, one-time password, usually six characters you have to enter in or digits, I should say. Some of the systems that use push, I, I would argue that it's almost frictionless MFA in that, I mean, all you have to do is approve something that comes to your phone. It's pretty darn easy. And if yep. you tie that to a biometric, you could even get rid of the credential. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the last part of MFA, they also recommend making sure you pre-plan for exceptions and enrollment in MFA. So making sure you've got adequate assurance that whoever the user is that's enrolling in MFA is actually the user in question. They gave examples of using an out-of-band one-time password for the, that initial enrollment if possible. Um, just other ways to harden this as well too. And I think that's a good thing to point out because... It was what the solar winds breach where the threat actors used the solar winds vulnerability to get into mandiant or FireEyes network um, and it was when that threat actor then went to go add a additional mfa authenticator to the compromised account that tripped off the alarm bells because mandiant were monitoring um, authenticator additions onto user accounts having a second one added is a rare enough occurrence like yes people get new phones and potentially need to add a new one but it's rare enough that you can flag it and investigate. In this case, they identified that attack and ultimately identified the whole SolarWinds breach and uh, malware within the, the, the software updates from that too. Uh, let's see. And then finally, number five from the report was IAM auditing and monitoring. So not only check for compliance, but monitor for threat indicators and anomalous activities. Um, can help identify how systems are being used or attempted to be misused and detect potential problems through indicators of attack or compromise or changes in behaviors. Basically, it boils down to get a baseline of normal activity for your users, your environments, different access patterns to specific systems or assets. And then based off that baseline, look for anomalous activity. Um, they actually, so one part of this was really interesting. They highlighted a, a study by DARPA the Anomaly Detection at Multiple Scales or ATOMS, Atoms. project, um, where they had some key findings from that project that make sense when you think of them, but it was uh, something I hadn't thought of before. So first off, malicious users are more active and choose to, quote, do nothing significantly less uh, times than benign users. 
So basically benign user activity, there'll be periods where from a IAM perspective, they're not doing anything. Maybe they're sitting there with a Word doc typing something up or you know, reading emails, but they're not interacting with your systems or assets in any way. Whereas a malicious user is at least more commonly trying to do something or access something else. Uh, malicious users fetched significantly more sensitive information than benign users. That one makes sense. Uh, once they figure out what sensitive data is, they're going to go after that more often than a typical benign user. Uh, malicious users edited data less compared to benign users. So a typical user, a benign one, may read less, but they'll edit more because they're actually doing their job. Yeah. Whereas a threat actor, they're just trying to steal everything possible. Download, download, download. Yep. Uh, malicious users sent significantly more information out of the org than benign users. That one's another kind of obvious one. They're trying to exfiltrate stuff out. And then malicious users fetched significantly less unsensitive data in contrast to benign users. So if you look at the types of data they're accessing, uh, for the lower severity ones, they're accessing it less often than a benign user. And so this kind of goes back to that original section of getting that data and system and access uh, audit and management system up in place, where once you're able to classify your data as you know business critical all the way down to whatever, effectively public, you can then look at access patterns to that different types of data and alert off of anomalous activity there too. Um, so kind of bringing it full circle. Um, and for recommendations for this, again, baselining, and then monitoring, so access, uh, how many of them were successful versus unsuccessful access attempts, what hours of the day they're using, system access, the volume of data they're transferring, look at changes of levels of activity and types of data they're accessing, and then watch for external traffic that includes new interactions with previously unknown sites. So that was your 14 minute summary of this 31 page report. And it is for the most part high level, but they include useful details along the way that I think it is anyone working with authentication in an organization should maybe take some time while they're eating their lunch to go through the report and pick out the important bits. They actually have like an appendix at the end of it too, with a easy to follow checklist uh, that I think all organizations could benefit from, even if you get to start it with half of them already checked. It's just, again, not really a framework, but a, a yeah checklist to follow for securing identity and access management. It's cool seeing this come out of CISA, CISA, however they pronounce it, and the NSA. Like, I'm glad that we're seeing more and more of these style of publications coming out, where it's not just a like a abstract framework to follow, but like concrete checklists of for a specific thing, like identity and access management. Here's how you secure it. Um, glad we're getting this focus now from that organization. Yeah, it's a nice guide. Like like you say, to people that follow different frameworks and have followed IM security before, nothing new, but still a fantastic if you if you haven't looked at a guide to IM identity access management security yet, this is a great one to start with. And I picture this is exceptionally useful for like a you know, small organization with a single IT guy or small IT staff that aren't security experts and they know they need to secure authentication and identity and access management, but maybe they don't know where to start. And this is the perfect guide on where to start with that and get you rolling. Um, so moving on, also from the government, this time from a completely different branch, on March 14th, the Securities and Exchange Commission announced two 
and a half major new proposals for cybersecurity measures targeting organizations that participate in securities trading. And the plan for this is these are proposed rules that are planned to be finalized under the re release of the SEC's overall new rules sometime next month. Um, so the first of the proposed rules updates existing regulations to require registered brokers, dealers, investment companies, investment advisors, transfer agents uh, to adopt written policies and procedures addressing unauthorized access to customers' personal information and financial information. Basically, there's already existing regulations from, I think, only 10 years ago uh, that required notifying customers when, they're, when a, one of these organizations uses their financial information. They're updating those rules now to notify when that information is breached in a cybersecurity incident. Um, so on the face of it, this sounds like a no-brainer to me. Uh, funny enough, if you go look up this proposed rule, it's like several hundred pages long, <laughs> along with justifications, when in reality it feels like it could have been summarized as a bullet point of that stuff you're doing right now when you use it, now do that as well when someone else uses it that you didn't expect them to. Problem <laughs> solved. I should go work for the SEC. There you go. Uh, the second proposed rule is a bit more in-depth, though, and... Corey, from yours and my conversations with folks in the legal space, too, this one's a little bit uh, controversial when it comes down to the details of it also. Uh, so the second proposal, proposed rule uh, creates new cybersecurity risk management guidelines and a new reporting obligation for cybersecurity incidents to the SEC uh, for that same set of organizations we mentioned just a se second ago. So for the first half of this, new, new policies must cover periodic assessment of cybersecurity risks, controls designed to minimize user-related risks, monitoring information systems, measures to detect, mitigate, remediate cybersecurity threats and vulnerabilities, and measures to detect and respond and recover from incidents. That all makes sense. Seems like every single organization, sector, whatever these days is, are getting new regulations around that style of activity. And yes, it'll cost more money for these organizations to do it. My sympathy levels for the financial sector are bottom level basement low because they make enough money that I feel like they can probably do some cybersecurity controls. But the second half of this though, the mandatory reporting requirements is where it gets kind of interesting. So the proposed rule is they must provide immediate written electronic notice of a significant cybersecurity incident to the SEC. And I'd say yeah. immediate is the quickest mandatory disclosure timeline of any regulated heard, yeah. industry. To be honest, the customer notification on the last one was 30 days. And sometimes people have argued for 90 days, not, not because organizations want, by the way, this is specific to, to financial organizations, obviously, but for the customer requirement for 30 days, we didn't even talk about that, Mark. Some, you know, with investigation, it's not that businesses want to hide, but once you learn of an incident, it often takes more than 30 days to figure out all the detail. Um, so even the first one for customer notification in 30 days, I thought was kind of quick, but this one immediate, hello, uh, being that the SEC is also the government, have they not thought about government investigation? Because I tell you what, if you're coordinating with, with other investigative authorities, like, I don't know, the police, the FBI, et cetera, they may not want you immediately reporting something uh, that 
they might be investigating with you. So it is kind of interesting that it's immediate. Yeah. And I have we'll to see admit, how that goes. I did not read the 503 page entirety of the proposed rule change, but I know initial uh, proposals for it did not uh, carve out exceptions for when you are like under a, a gag order from a uh, federal agency or part of an active investigation. Well, I so, assume if you had a legitimate like uh, order from a court, we jokingly call it gag order, but I'm sure it has some very specific legal name that might override it. But but still having to do that, I, I just think uh, we're you and I are for notification like this does matter. Uh, customers that have their finances with the people that have to follow this or the organization that have to follow this. It's important to me as a customer of some of these sectors, financial services. That, that I know of things quickly, because uh, I, I think the reason you might want argue that the financial sector needs to inform people quicker is, you know, we see it with the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. They, they If a bad thing happens, there can be quite big economic consequences. So I think the SEC just wants to figure it out quickly. But it's just, I'm sure there's exceptions. I think the immediate just is, it's scary for organizations. Not that, not that they don't want to be transparent. Even ones that want transparency want to have a little time to figure out what really happened and what really got lost. And like, so, I, like you said, you and I are both very for like pro notification. But I have to ask, like, what is the value of a immediate notification? Like, there was an instant. Okay, what kind of data is accessed? We don't know who was impacted. We don't know who was it. We don't know. Like it's you're not going to have yeah. answers to any of those questions from the get go. Like I wish I didn't read the 500 either, but I guess like what is the SEC's purpose of knowing? I, I don't. I, I haven't. You know, I've only been reading the fact sheet for this one. But is it notify the SEC, not notify the world? This is I the could, SEC. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the SEC's intention isn't to, when you immediately notify them, it becomes public to everyone. Maybe they just like if, if the reporting is a big bank that suddenly had a a a a huge breach that could literally, you know, tank stock markets, make bank runs, and things like that. So I guess from the SEC's perspective, they want to know immediately, not because they're going to force it public immediately, but because they need to take time to act as a government agency to offset, you know, that bank run and consider things they might do to economically. So I'm, I'm, I'm making crap up. I'm trying to imagine why right. it would be immediate. But that's the, I, I guess I should point out that maybe this immediate reporting is just to the SEC. And if their intention is not yet to make it public, to still give you time to investigate, they just want to know very early in the process. And if they have some sort of you know, privacy clause of their own where they will keep it private until the mandatory public disclosure, yeah, I can see but, a, uh, but like it, it would be difficult. Yeah. The SEC's favorite thing to go after is like insider trading and things like that. And I could see it as another piece of that where as they impacted organization, notifying the SEC so that they can see suddenly if your executive board sells off a bunch of shares, which would be exactly. considered insider trade. So, okay. I guess that makes sense in that context. 
It is. I would be curious if, if their, their intention is to learn from you immediately, but not share it publicly until required. That would change things a little. Either yeah, way, so. though, it is a burden because, you know, when you first learn about this as an organization, you got a lot to do. You're going to, your plate is full of just normal stuff. And now you have to remember this other organization that you have to inform, which means they're going to be reaching out to ask you more questions, taking more of your time while you're in the middle of the investigation. So it is is still a burden even if it doesn't make it public and now the sec has the strongest uh, mandatory disclosure well soon they will have the strongest or at least most rapid mandatory disclosure timeline of anyone of that everyone. i'm aware of yeah i think there's one state that does 30 days for mandatory disclosures for customer information for normal organizations I can't remember which it is. It's not for it's 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 one of the East Coast, Vermont or something like that. But most of them, I think, are ninety days for mandatory disclosure. Well, in critical infrastructure, it's quite a bit more rapid. Like thanks to Circia, it's what forty-eight That's hours true. or seventy-two hours oh, yeah. now. But critical even that, structure is different. It's not yeah. instantaneous like this is. Yeah. So, well, we'll see. Again, this is all they're proposed. They're now open for comment until April. And I think as with anything in cybersecurity, there will probably be quite a few comments on this one from uh, potentially impacted or regulated organizations. Um, so moving on to the last one, uh, last week, the FBI arrested a New York man on suspicion of running the breach forums, hacking forums. Uh, so breach forums, very popular English language cybercrime forum uh, where hacked databases were commonly posted for sale or for free. Uh, speaking from the WatchGuard Threat Lab perspective, it's one that we followed regularly to identify uh, expo exposed breaches and breach databases to load up into our dark scan database as well, too. This was effectively the reincarnation of raid forums, which was a even more popular English language cybercrime forum that the FBI took down in April of 2022. In fact, breach forums popped up like within weeks of that takedown, if I remember correctly. And there was some question of whether or not this was like an FBI honeypot or if it was a uh, legitimate, in air quotes, uh, hacking forum led by cyber criminals. Uh, so the individual uh, that was arrested is known by his handle, um, Pom Pom Purin, uh, which the FBI said uh, his real name is Connor Fitzpatrick. And during the arrest, he admitted to using that alias and admitted that he was the owner of Breach Forums. Um, so on top of running Breach Forums, uh, Pom Pom Purin also claimed credit for the November 2021 incident where the FBI's email systems began sending out a whole bunch of fake uh, emails around cybercrime investigations. I think we, we either talked about this as a team on Cyclicity or on the podcast, but I remember November of that year, suddenly the FBI organizations were getting emails from the FBI's own email addresses claiming that they were a part of some cybercrime investigation. They had identified information stolen from that org. It was a pretty big deal back in the time. And this guy, the lead admin of Breach Forums, claimed credit uh, back then. Uh, malicious hackers have also used Breach Forums for things like uh, they published the breach of InfraGuard back in December of 2021. This is the cyber and physical threat intel sharing platform that had around 80,000 members at the time, which this breach forced the FBI to disable the portal and then forced all re-members to reapply to the yeah. program afterwards. They, they basically, they just applied with fake information and it worked, right? <laughs> yeah. So they said, okay, screw it. We'll start from scratch. 
Um, let's see. So after that arrest, though, which, okay, the guy was located in New York. Was that right? Which, if you're running a cybercrime forum where you are actively participating in cyber criminal activity, maybe don't do it from within the United States. I, I don't know. That that feels like I don't a know. Big don't fail. you remember Sabu? Wasn't he someone anonymous guy, uh, Lolsack? And yeah, smart. Yes, good advice. Unfortunately, I do think a lot of U.S. folks still participate. At least put the form somewhere else and use VPNs. Yeah. Well, after the arrest of Pom Pom Purin, the other lead admin, uh, Baphomet is his handle, announced that they were going to bring down the forums offline permanently. Uh, he basically said that the potential risk of trying to keep them online without Pom Pom Purin uh, was significantly greater than the benefit of leaving it online. But he didn't leave out the possibility of reincarnating it again somewhere else. So... My hot take on this is, like, we just did an episode a couple weeks ago on Section 230 and uh, how that covers, like, a, let's say, a web app, a website, a web forum from the content posted by their users. Now, Corey, loaded question to you. What are your thoughts on a platform entirely designed around cybercrime? And should, like, ignoring that they actually participated in a bit, if they were just like an admin running a forum where breached information is stolen and sold, should the owners of that platform be held liable for the content that's posted on it? Or is this a situation where maybe it's going because it's specifically for cybercrime, them getting arrested is Isn't the same thing we're asking Facebook and Google and TikTok too, by the way? Should they have to moderate? <laughs> uh, so same question. Uh, I... Here's the weird thing about these forms. I The fact that it's gone away means that we're going to lose a little bit of threat intelligence temporarily until we get a new one. And it's the whole, does having a link to pirated or other illegal information and does posting a link to that information when you don't own that link at all, does, is that criminal? Uh, a hard question. I mean, technically, I, I would assume if I created a form, and even though it was a form that was made for underground people to do cybercrime, but I wasn't actually, you know, uh, doing anything illegal myself. You know, I wasn't participating. I let the sellers and the buyers figure out their own validation. I didn't take a, a other than a point system or any sort of subscription for keeping the forum up. I didn't do much then I actually think there's not much you can do to, to go after that person. I don't think that particular person is doing anything illegal. Now, the second they start to moderate sales or uh, they are the ones that verify sellers are, are good sellers by taking stolen information and looking at it and somehow confirming it, I don't know, it, it becomes a little gray area. But if you're literally just a webmaster, even if you're a webmaster of an unsavory place, I don't know if First Amendment stuff still protects you as long as you're not participating in any criminal deeds. But I that, that wasn't what Palm Per whatever, I can't even pronounce Palm, the name, Palm was Purin. doing. Palm Purin was doing, right? <laughs> exactly. I think them participating in a breach and then bragging about it on their own forum is probably where the, at least that is where the line is absolutely crossed. Now, yeah. I don't know, like a place that is specifically designed for something illegal, 
feels like that probably errs on the side of not being protected by Section 230 if it was specifically advertised for that purpose. That said, was breach forms, well, I guess the name is literally breach forms. So even if it wasn't designed specifically for selling But if you ever went to it, they went to, I mean, they have things like leak databases. What about if a gray hat researcher just wanted to gather up stolen information that they had nothing to do with, but they wanted to use it to inform companies of their stolen information? That, that could be called breached forms because it's breached information. You're not participating in the crime. You're just trying to find anything publicly, by publicly available, I mean that you didn't have to spend money on or do anything illegal to get. Some idiot just put it on Mega or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you're documenting it specifically to create kind of a, a notification service for the companies that are affected or the people affected by this breach data. You know, it is a, it's a weird gray area. To be honest, I mean, I, I'm not I, I I'm not crying any tears for Pom 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 Purin. I, I could care less. They're probably criminals. I'm a little sad that we'll have to go find another place to see what they're doing. It is nice to lurk on these type of forums to watch the posts. It gives us information about the costs of materials, what types of things they're targeting. Certainly some of the data is leaked. It's not just for sale and some of that leaked data can be used to protect users. So. But yeah, I'm, I'm not fighting strongly for some sort of right for people to put up obviously illegal undergrounds. That said, every time we bring one, every time the good guys do bring one down, they do come some form of, maybe not the exact one, but someone does. I mean, the market exists, so it will show up somewhere. Uh, now, good guys need to go find the new place to see if we can keep our eye on the bad guys. Yep, I'm with you on that. It does make our job a little bit harder to try and track this information. But from the FBI's perspective, I understand wanting to shut down a cyber. So good takedown. Yeah, I mean, the best way to stop them from crime is to disrupt their ability to make money, and this is where they sell and buy often. So I definitely think it's. Uh, I mean. For a while, it seemed like the good news of them taking down raid forms wasn't so good when Breached came right back, but uh, obviously they have follow through at the FBI. And I have to imagine that uh, even if they didn't, so typically how the FBI does this is they arrest the individual, gain administrative access, sit there with it as a FBI run honeypot for like a week, and then they put up the big old branded, we've taken this website offline because XYZ thing. Even though the, the other administrator is manually bringing the site down now, I bet in a week from now, we'll probably see that FBI logo plastered on the domain name anyway. So, uh, well, I guess time to start hunting for the, uh, the next reincarnation of this English language cybercrime forum. Any guess on what the name of that one will be? We had raid forums, breach forums, maybe, uh, I don't know, sneak <laughs> forums, hide forums, go away FBI yeah. forums. Not up for long forums. Exactly. <laughs> Ephemeral forums. There we go. Uh, but either way, good for the FBI. They arrested someone, and especially someone that specifically hacked them. So I bet there's a little bit of cathartic happiness going on in the agency right now. Cheers. Yeah, to no, I, by the way, like, uh, just the arrest, that is cool. Last time, they, they don't always arrest people when they take down these forums because it's pretty easy to anonymize, and some of the people running them are international. So just actually getting a person that's responsible for cybercrime always feels like a great win to me. 
Yep. So big takeaway, if you're going to participate in cybercrime, don't do it within the boundaries of the United States or their reachable long arm of the law. How about just, just don't do it, please. If you're, if you're smart, well, I, that's not true. Actually, cybercrime has become pretty easy with all the affiliate crap and the exploit kits that are pre-made for you. But typically, if you're smart enough to do this kind of thing, you're smart enough to make good money another way. Yep. Stay in school, kids. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions for today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I think it's still there. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecondEpt. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.